the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcedon Report number 96, August 1973. Almost every week by letter, person, or telephone, a number of reports come to me which indicate a common malady, moral paralysis. A state senator reported that most of his colleagues were less and less sure of their liberal and radical doctrines. They saw events confounding their faith and their old, easy assurances were giving way to a fearful and bitter uncertainty and uneasiness, and an inability to act with their old vigor. A meeting of prominent, quote, conservatives, unquote, turned up a wide variety of ideas. More than a few were pro-abortion, and a variety of other radical ideas were present in virtually all, so that a visitor remarked that a conservative is an unawares liberal. The meeting got nowhere, in that nothing could be agreed upon except to be anti-radical, whatever that might mean. Still another example, a doctor of considerable ability and influence is unable to act to check the rapid moral deterioration of his own children, or of his medical society. He dislikes the quote new unquote morality, and he does not believe in abortion, but he is unable to oppose either. Quote, After all, unquote, he says, quote, Who am I to force my ideas on anyone else? I have no way of knowing what is right and wrong, and my ideas may simply reflect the mores and customs of my youth. All I can say is that I have my principles, and they are mine, but I can't say they are good for everybody. Unquote. To a limited degree, the doctor is right. If a man's principles are merely his own, then he has no right to impose them on anyone else, nor can he logically do so. The result is a moral paralysis. Even what he holds to be good for himself is then meaningless, because it has no roots in reality for him. As long as the Marxists believed in dialectical materialism and the, quote, inevitability, unquote, of the triumph of the proletariat, they had vitality and drive. They believed that history made their victory inescapable. The growing disillusionment of Marxists and the growth of awareness of the basic relativism of their premises have led to a decline of power and a creeping moral paralysis. Moreover, the followers of the left have become increasingly aware that pragmatism, not principles, governs their leaders. However pragmatic people may be in their personal lives, they want their leaders to be guided by principles. 
This is a moral contradiction, but all the same, true. In the 1930s, dedicated young liberals read The Nation as the voice of idealism. Now aging and pragmatic liberals read The Nation and agree with the writers like Hans Konigsberger when he denies that Juan Domingo Perón was a, quote, fascist dictator, unquote. Konigsberger solemnly declares that the fascist and Nazi labels were tied to Perón by the U.S. State Department and a section of the press. Perón is now the champion of the Argentine left, and we are reminded that he is never in favor of free enterprise and free trade. Konigsberger gives us a lyrical portrait of Perón and, quote, Saint, unquote, Eva, including an account of a mass for Eva on the 20th anniversary of her death. The old magic is gone, however, and the report reads better as humor and caricature rather than political fervor. Hans Konigsberger, quote, Argentina joins the third world, unquote, The Nation, July 2, 1973, volume 217, number 1, pages 17 through 20. It is, however, typical. Pragmatism and partisanship have displaced principles to a very great degree. The 1960s saw worldwide student action followed by student inertia. For many, the student movements of that decade were the beginning of a new world order, but their only consequence has been a deeper descent into cynicism and moral paralysis. The flaw of these movements was a very obvious one. Moral strength and advantage was associated not with character and principles, but rather with holding that things are wrong. Youth held itself to be morally superior because it was declaring the world and its parents to be in the wrong. This was true enough at many times, but it meant nothing because these young critics were no better and sometimes worse than the things they criticized. Recognizing theft when one sees it does not make one an honest man. After all, thieves are best at recognizing theft. Moral reform does not mean the ability to recognize evil, but the power to do good and to rebuild in terms of righteousness and justice. A major fallacy of our time is that righteousness is equated with denunciations of evil, which means that those with the best nose for dirt gain the best reputation for character. Not surprisingly, moral reform in the 20th century generally begins and ends with investigating committees and groups, and a report on evil is equated with moral strength. The result is a growing moral paralysis and, increasingly, a world scene in which every pot is calling every kettle black, and they are all right. Let us repeat it. There is no moral advantage in detecting evil, only in doing good. At this point, our world is seriously derelict and ineffectual. Its moral paralysis runs deep, and its roots are in the inability of men to declare what is right for all men at all times. Let us turn again to the doctor who does not want to impose his ideas on his family and his profession. If we are moral, and if we refuse to practice abortion, only because we do not like the alternatives then we can neither claim righteousness for our position nor impose it on anyone else. 
We have no reason for holding our position to be true other than our own prejudices. Logically, we can then only say, quote, let every man do that which is right in his own eyes, unquote. But if we hold that a sovereign God governs things and holds all to be accountable to Him and His absolute law, we have no right to condone in ourselves or in anyone else a denial of that moral order. We then do not stand on our own options, but on ultimate and unchanging law. Instead of moral paralysis, we then have moral vitality. The modern state has shifted its legal foundations from Christianity to humanism, from a belief in ultimate law to an affirmation of ultimate relativism. The modern state has taken over education in order to organize mankind in terms of statist humanism, and the result has been the rise of totalitarianism and moral paralysis. The fundamental principle of legal positivism or relativism is that the state declares that the good is what the state does and just law is whatever the state decrees. There is then no God but the state, and the party in power is its prophet. But man is still God's creature, created in his image, and no matter how much the state seeks to remake man, man's thoughts inescapably witness to his true maker. Man may hold to moral relativism, but his being is governed by moral absolutes. A few years ago, a professor who insisted that there is no good and evil and that all things are relative insisted also that the Vietnam War was absolutely wrong morally. When I asked him how he could say anything is morally wrong in terms of his premises or say more than, for me it is wrong, he became angry. Some things have to be wrong, he insisted. This was illogical, but it reflected his basic schizophrenia. He was denying the God who created him, and he was still affirming that somehow moral judgment could transcend man. If there is nothing beyond man other than more people, then every man's judgment has equal validity, and the quote law unquote of society becomes the hippie slogan of the 1960s, do your own thing. The result is anarchy and moral paralysis. Men wish the world to be just and moral while denying moral law. Selwyn Rab, writing in the same issue of The Nation as Hans Koningsberger, speaks with intensity of justice and cites a case of serious injustice. Clearly, justice in society is desired. Yet in the next article, Alan Wolf criticizes Irving Kristol's analysis of our contemporary situation by saying, quote, Like all historical conservatives, Kristol attributes the problem to a moral crisis. Unquote. If there is no moral crisis, then why are there serious problems of injustice? And if there is no absolute right and wrong, why be concerned about purely relative matters? The fact is that people in growing numbers are unconcerned. Truth and justice means less and less to them. In a relativistic perspective, the only legitimate personal, quote, moral, unquote, goal can be self-realization. Nothing counts save the absolute individual who can realize himself only at the expense of others. If we try to replace this with a social realization for humanity, then we say that the state has the right to realize itself at the expense of the individual. 
In either case, we have no valid ground for moral action. A man cannot climb up a ladder unless the ladder can be given a base on hard and solid ground. A ladder cannot be planted on air or on clouds. To climb, a man must first have a valid base to start from. Similarly, men and society require a valid base for moral action and progress. That foundation is the God of Scripture. As the psalmist observed long ago, quote, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman walketh but in vain. Unquote. Psalms 127.1 Moral paralysis affects different men in different ways. Some years ago, Goss commented on the deep melancholy of the poet Thomas Gray and others who showed clearly the decay of the will to live which was an aspect of the Enlightenment. Of Gray, he wrote, quote, He never habitually rose above this deadly dullness of the spirits. Nothing was more frequent than for men, in apparently robust health, to break down suddenly at all points in early middle life. People were not in the least surprised when men like Garth and Fenton died of mere indolence because they became prematurely corpulent and could not be persuaded to get out of bed, unquote. Edmund W. Goss, Gray, page 13F. Not all men show their moral collapse by means of physical or mental inertia. With some, it manifests itself in a savage hostility to moral order, in attempts to smash and obliterate everything which reminds them of a world they refuse to recognize. In either case, there is a moral paralysis insofar as any effective command of the future is concerned and there is a loss of the ability to rebuild or even to perpetuate an order. For this reason, although moral paralysis is always a dangerous phenomenon, it is also a suicidal one. It has no future. Today we have a phenomenal interest in the future, a vast curiosity about it, and a futurology has become a, quote, science, unquote. A curiosity about the future is, however, definitely not the same as the ability to command it. There is a difference between idle curiosity and dominion. The calling of man under God is to dominion, and wherever there is true faith, there is an extension of God's power and of dominion in, through, and under Him. Moral action means dominion, in the family and in all society. It means dominion over ourselves and over all the world in every area of science, art, industry, agriculture, society, and life. Western civilization was not lost by the church to its enemies. It was surrendered by default, by the inner decay of Christian theology and philosophy and humanistic statism readily occupied the territory which the churches defaulted by their apostasy and waywardness. Today, the same process of default is in operation, this time by the humanist and statist. One report after another cites the growing cynicism and contempt of people for their political leaders and their growing disillusionment with the political hope, as well as the moral decay and paralysis which runs deeply in all classes. This being so, 
This is a time of great opportunity. The future belongs to men who can exercise dominion and who are under the dominion of Almighty God. The mind of the dying turns over the good and bad in his doctors and nurses. The living are at work, because the present and the future are theirs to redeem. For the living, the time of opportunity is a time of promise. There is no clearer way to view our time. Calcine Report number 97, September 1973. A very popular myth first propagated by the Romans is that the early Christians were recruited from the dregs of society and from slaves. While the early church won converts from all classes, it very clearly appealed most to thoughtful and educated men who saw the decay of civilization. Pliny, the younger, c. 112 AD, referred to Christianity as a, quote, depraved and extravagant superstition, unquote. In his report to the Emperor Trajan, but Pliny also admitted to the high moral character of the Christians and the fact that a number of them were Roman citizens. In those days, citizenship was reserved for the elite. Many slaves, however, were highly educated people. The myth tells us also that the disciples were ignorant fishermen. The high level of education in Israel in that era rules out ignorance. Moreover, Fishermen are not necessarily or by any means poor or backward. We know that John and James were the sons of Zebedee, a wealthy fisherman, and either related or a family friend to the high priest, John 18.15f. St. Paul was a man of education and importance, as was his family in the Roman Empire. The New Testament gives many evidences of the importance of many of the early converts, St. Luke addressed his gospel in Acts to Theophilus, a man of high official rank. In the very earliest days of the church in Jerusalem, quote, a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith, unquote. Acts 6-7. The converts included the officers of Caesar's court, Philippians 4-22, prominent merchants like Priscilla and Aquila, and many other persons of note. The first eyewitness account we have of the execution of Christians on March 7, 203 A.D. at Roman Carthage is an especially revealing account. The Passion of St. Perpetua gives us an eyewitness narration of the arrest, trial, and death in the arena of a group of Christians of various strata of society from slaves to Vibia Perpetua, who was a young wife and mother of noble birth. Like all converts, they had not only their faith in common, but also an awareness of the decay of the civilization around them. The anonymous author of the account writes to give his readers, quote, modern instances, unquote, of faith and martyrdom. Perpetuous stand was especially offensive to Hilarion, the procurator, because he was a family friend. The young woman, however, could not be shaken from her faith and was thrown to the wild animals. Or, Waterville, Muncie, Editor, The Passion of St. Perpetua, London, Dent, 1927. The reason for such incidents was an obvious one. Young mothers like Perpetua, concerned about the decay of culture and the future of their families, were drawn to study groups and accepted the new faith. The same was true of many intellectuals of the day. 
This, in fact, was a major problem to the church. So many intellectuals were drawn to the faith, but brought with them the framework of their old philosophies that the early church had a major battle continually against the syncretistic heresies created by philosophers who fused old philosophies with the new faith. The humanism of Greece and Rome had decayed into superstitions. Astrology, occultism, magic, pornography, perverse sexuality, and much more had become the working faith of many. Because of their extensive adoption of astrology and occultism, these humanists had lost increasingly the idea of causality, and with it, science. The cult of fortune, according to Cochrane, led to, quote, the deification of chance itself. To make the course of history turn on such a principle is fatal to intellectual integrity and moral responsibility alike, unquote. Charles N. Cochrane, Christianity and Classic Culture, page 479, New York, Oxford, 1944. All that Rome had was the power of the state, an increasingly brutal power. It was increasingly bankrupt intellectually and spiritually. The more Rome became bankrupt, the more it depended on brute force. For a thoughtful minority, the Christian faith offered a solution, the only possible solution. As Cochrane noted, the central theme of early Christian thinkers was one of, quote, emancipation, unquote, page 221. As witnessed Justin Martyr's joyful summation of the difference in his apology, I-14, joy, meaning, and direction had been restored to life. Much of the savage hatred and slander of the early church by Romans was based on the fact that they resented the drain of great minds to the opposition, and their answer was to call them, quote, superstitious, unquote, and, quote, slaves, unquote. The same situation prevails today. An undergraduate student declared that no scientist could believe the Bible. When he was told of the distinguished men of science who did, and of the number of important men in space research who did, his answer was simply, quote, No one can believe that God literally made the earth and be a scientist, unquote. The fact is, however, that for the past decade, many of the best students from the camps of statism have, quote, freaked out, unquote, and have become irrelevant freaks. By default, more and more positions of authority are being lost to the statist and quietly occupied by Christians. As Wheeler has so plainly stated it, quote, The secular thrust is toward the creation of natural man. In example, men who do not have a strong internalized sense of guilt and whose interest is to do pretty much as they please, unquote. This, quote, new, unquote, man of secularism sees the enemy as the repressive past. Richard S. Wheeler, The Children of Darkness, page 11, New Rochelle, New York, Arlington House, 1973. As a result, he wages war on the, quote, past, unquote, on tradition, institutions, laws, and above all else, the church. His vision is past-bound, and his answer is essentially to destroy, so that whether it is Marcuse or unthinking hippies, the result is a belief in salvation by destruction. In any other era, if as many persons were involved in antisocial warfare as the 1960s saw, it would have meant revolution. 
The undisciplined, quote, natural man, unquote, of the secular world was not able to function well, even in his rebellion. The modern state is bankrupt and its children are bankrupt. There is no future with them. In all the world today, there is not a single head of state with any intellectual caliber and direction or with great moral force. One nation after another is faced with internal corruption and moral decay. Many of these rulers have great power, but they are incompetent in the exercise of power in any form other than repression. Their answer to problems is to control and repress, not to solve them. More than in the days of the early church, an intellectually alert Christianity is needed to provide the answer. The world is up for grabs, but only by the men of faith and ideas to command it. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.